Hi, and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series featuring articles from the December 2019 issue, Volume 40, Issue 12. First on today's episode, Bradley Langford and Larissa Matukas join us to talk about their scoping review of Nudging in Microbiology Laboratory Evaluation, NIMBLE. Then, Courtney Pagels, Thomas Dilworth, Lynn Fahrenbacher, and Charles Brummett discuss their article, Impact of an Electronic Best Practice Advisory in Combination with Prescriber Education on Antibiotic Prescribing for Ambulatory Adults with Acute Uncomplicated Bronchitis within a large integrated health system. And lastly, Stefan Kuster joins us to discuss his research on a comprehensive unit-based safety program for the reduction of surgical site infections in plastic surgery and hand surgery. After listening, please be sure to go to the December issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Joining us first today is Bradley Langford and Larissa Matukas, two of the authors of the article, Nudging in Microbiology Laboratory Evaluation, NIMBLE, a scoping review. Dr. Langford and Dr. Matukas, thank you so much for joining us today. To start, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm Brad Langford. I'm a pharmacist consultant with the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at Public Health Ontario and an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at uh, Hotel Two Shaver Hospital in St. Catharines, Ontario. Hi, I'm Dr. Larissa Matukas. I'm the head of microbiology at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and I'm also an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Well, welcome, and thank you for joining us. To begin, will you give us a little bit of the background for this review? So the background really goes back to the, the concept of nudging, which is rooted in the behavioral economics literature. So nudging is essentially guiding decision-making Uh, based on the way that choices are presented. So we know that this can be an effective and somewhat stealth way of modifying uh, human behavior. The nudging has been used in many fields, such as marketing. So for example, when you go to the grocery store, you'll notice that they keep the milk, a very commonly purchased item at the back of the store to ensure that shoppers make their way through the middle of the store and pick up other items along the way. Or another example where you go to a restaurant and are paying a bill using a credit card, the machine will usually suggest a default tip percentage, and this will help increase the odds that that tip amount is actually selected by the customer. So although nudging is extensively used elsewhere, um, it's really only beginning to be applied to the world of antimicrobial stewardship. And our group is particularly interested in how this applies to antimicrobial stewardship in the microbiology laboratory setting. So for our purposes, we've focused on nudging in the microbiology laboratory setting and defined nudging as a strategy to influence decision-making through the strategic reporting of microbiology results without compromising the prescriber's autonomy of selecting uh, the, the appropriate treatment. So a common example of this is selective reporting. Both Canadian and U.S. guidelines, including the CLSI and IDSA, both recommend having selective reporting policies in place but these are not strong recommendations, and the specific strategies are left up to the individual laboratory and the individual antimicrobial stewardship programs. So in order to have a better understanding of these strategies that have been tried and the research gaps that exist, 
we conducted a scoping review with the question, what evidence exists for the use of nudging strategies in the microbiology laboratory to improve antimicrobial use? And so can you tell us a little bit more about how you conducted this review and what you found? So based on our, our experience, we already recognized that there was a lack of evidence to support the guidance provided by CLSI and IDSA, but we really wanted a comprehensive and systematic approach to summarizing the studies that have been done to date. So that's what, why, why we did a scoping review. And a scoping review differs from a systematic review in that it focuses more on the breadth of the literature rather than the depth. The aim is to map the literature rather than to synthesize it and to identify some research gaps that can be addressed in future studies. So we did a literature search across a number of databases, including all studies that met the criteria of nudging interventions used by the microbiology laboratory. So those interventions included, but were not limited to, one of three different approaches. So firstly, a default choice strategy, which is really presenting only the desired options. So examples of this could be selective or cascade reporting. Secondly, a framing strategy, which is including comments or recommendations within the report to help guide appropriate treatment. And then finally, eye-level strategies, which is putting the desired choices at the top of the report or making them more noticeable in some way. Overall, we reviewed 1,342 articles and found 15 studies eligible for inclusion. We found that most of these studies were published in the last decade and were largely focused on the inpatient settings. Uh, we also found most studies were pre and post in terms of their design uh, without a control, so not the most rigorous of, of study design. We found that the most commonly employed strategy was that default choice strategy of uh, selective or cascade reporting. But other more recent approaches that we found interesting were adding comments to the respiratory specimens where normal flora were isolated to indicate that no MRSA or no Pseudomonas aeruginosa has been isolated to help uh, encourage the escalation of antimicrobial therapy. And another example was the use of modified reporting of selected low-risk urine cultures where the organism and the susceptibility results were withheld by the laboratory in an attempt to reduce the unnecessary treatment of asymptomatic bacteriuria. So in terms of outcomes, all the studies that we looked at evaluated antimicrobial use in some form or another, and 12 of the studies, so a large majority of them, reported improvement associated with nudging, which really indicates that this is certainly a promising strategy worthy of further investigation. And so what would you say are the key takeaways of this review for itchy readers? So I think as uh, Dr. Langford already highlighted that it's quite novel to actually apply behavioral science, particularly nudging in uh, medicine and even more so within antimicrobial stewardship. So it's certainly a new uh, emerging and growing field that we should continue to explore. I think one of the other things that we may not have made clear within the paper, but I think is really important to consider when we're looking at these types of strategies, is that it really takes a multidisciplinary collaborative approach for, for the strategy to be successful. And so that involves many stakeholders, such as your clinical microbiologist, your infectious disease specialists, all the clinicians that participate within the stewardship program, so both the physicians and the stewardship pharmacists. Um, it will also probably involve some kind of information technology, and it may also consider using other divisions or individuals from 
your area, which may include things like your frontline uh, physicians or nurse practitioners or other pharmacists as well. And frankly, you know, it's becoming increasingly difficult to have these multidisciplinary collaborative approaches in this era where we're consolidating and centralizing laboratories. And so it makes it even more challenging to create those alliances with our clinical microbiologists because it takes the microbiologists further away from the front line when they are in a centralized lab. So despite all of those ch potential challenges, I think that this uh, study really identifies great opportunities for additional research and the impact that it can have on a much broader population, particularly because microbiology reports can be seen by any frontline clinician. So whilst our scoping review identified that selective or cascading reporting or that default choice was probably the predominantly studied uh, nudging strategy, I think we should be taking a look at some of the other strategies as well, such as the framing or the eye level. And we can also expand it to look at other patient populations. We identified that most of these studies were done in the adult population, but certainly we should be looking at our pediatric population. And again, uh, whilst most of this study was done in inpatients, there is an opportunity to apply this in the outpatient setting as well. The um, other takeaway that we'd like to sort of share with, the, with itchy readers is that some of these interventions could actually be very simple and you should definitely try to apply them in your local practice, but also to anticipate when doing so the unintended consequences and be prepared to evaluate fulsomely all aspects. So some of the unintended consequences that may not have been identified within our study was, you know, when you start restricting or, or putting in different comments into the microbiology reports, it might actually prompt frontline clinicians to call the microbiology more frequently, which may cause some disruptions or interruptions to the work and efficiency of the laboratory. But even more importantly is to look at what the unintended consequences might be to patient outcomes to ensure that no harm is being done and that we continue to see only benefits from these interventions. And you touched on this a little bit, but can you talk a little bit more about the limitations of this review and any future research questions that it raised? So I think one of the difficulties that we identified when we were starting the scoping review that Dr. Langford also alluded to was the nomenclature that is being used in the literature. So it's really quite inconsistent and how we can identify these types of nudging strategies in the literature is actually quite difficult. And whilst uh, we did our best to overcome that by doing a very thorough search of multiple uh, databases, plus doing a great literature review, I think that there is still probably a few more studies out there that we may not have been able to consider. So I think going forward, given that this is a new field, that we should be a little bit more consistent in the nomenclature that we use and be more consistent with the terminology. Secondly, we only saw a very small group of studies that we could include in our scoping review. And the heterogeneity in, st in strategies was actually quite prominent, as well as the outcomes that were studied. So it really prevented us from pooling the results. So I think there is an opportunity for future research. And in fact, we actually use the scoping review as the stepping stone to multiple phases of a research program that we have envisioned. Our group is actually a team of infectious disease specialists, ID pharmacists, microbiologists, epidemiologists, and even behavioral therapists, which really creates that comprehensive collaborative approach to studying nudging in uh, stewardship interventions. We are actually planning to do another study that really looks at vignettes and to study how people respond to a, 
a particular situation with the different nudging strategies. And hopefully we'll have some results from that study within the next uh, year or so. In addition, following those vignette studies, we're actually planning on doing a prospective randomized controlled trial to see how nudging actually influences prescriber behavior in the real world setting. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Langford and Dr. Matukas for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Our pleasure. Our next guests today are Courtney Pagels, Thomas Dilworth, Lynn Fahrenbacher, and Charles Frumman, several of the authors of the article, Impact of an Electronic Best Practice Advisory in Combination with Prescriber Education on Antibiotic Prescribing for Ambulatory Adults with Acute Uncomplicated Bronchitis Within a Large Integrated Health System. Welcome everybody and thank you for joining us today. To start, would everybody introduce themselves to our listeners? Hi, Lindsay. Uh, my name is Courtney Pagels. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious diseases at Advocate Aurora Health. And when this study was performed, I was a PGY2 infectious diseases pharmacy resident at Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My name is Tom Dilworth. Um, I'm an infectious diseases pharmacist based at Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Lynn Fehrenbacher. I'm an Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Concordia University School of Pharmacy, as well as an Infectious Diseases Pharmacist at Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hi, uh, Charles Brummett. I'm an Infectious Disease Clinician at Aurora St. Luke's Medical Center and Co-Director of the Antibiotic Stewardship Program at Aurora Health System. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. To begin, can you give us a little bit of the background for this study? Sure, so uh, this study um, was focusing on acute uncomplicated bronchitis. And we know that viral respiratory tract infections such as acute uncomplicated bronchitis are considered antibiotic never events. So meaning that antibiotics are never indicated because there's negligible benefit of antibiotic treatment and there are risks associated with giving patients antibiotics when they're not needed. And so we know that most antimicrobial stewardship efforts right now nationally are focused more on the inpatient setting. However, previous literature has shown that an estimated 50% of antibiotic prescriptions may be unnecessary or inappropriate in the outpatient setting. And an example of the effect of these efforts being focused on the inpatient setting, which was recently reported in the CDC's Antibiotic Resistance Threats Report this year, was that healthcare-associated Clostridioides difficile infections are decreasing. However, community-associated infections are not. And so improving prescribing in outpatient settings has been identified as a crucial component to combating antibiotic resistance and antibiotic-associated adverse effects such as C. difficile infections. So until this intervention, our health system's antimicrobial stewardship committee had really only focused its efforts um, mostly on inpatient antimicrobial use. And so with all of this background and these reasons in mind, our stewardship committee chose this intervention as our first attempt at a large-scale ambulatory antimicrobial stewardship initiative. And can you tell us a little bit about what you did in this study and what you found? 
Yeah, so in this study, we implemented an outpatient antimicrobial stewardship um, intervention at our health system in Wisconsin. And the intervention consisted of a best practice advisory within the electronic medical record and then an optional educational module, both discouraging the use of antibiotics for adults with acute bronchitis who presented to emergency departments, urgent cares, or ambulatory clinics throughout our health system. And this intervention was easy to implement. The best practice advisory was created by our informatics team and this was coupled with tracking antibiotic prescribing rates using ICD-10 codes and prescription data at the facility level. And so it was easy to implement, and so we believe that it should be reproducible um, by others who might want to implement this initiative as well. And over the course of three years during our study, there were over 171,000 patient encounters that were included. And patient prescriber and site level characteristics were compared between patients in the pre and post intervention groups. And we also performed a multivariable analysis of predictors of antibiotic prescribing in our patient population. And can you tell us a little bit about your findings? Yes, so the best practice advisory and education in our study led to a modest reduction in antibiotic prescribing from about 61% to 51% overall. And we saw the largest reduction in the emergency departments compared to the ambulatory clinics and urgent care settings. Overall, about 10% reduction equated to thousands of antibiotic prescriptions not being written. However, this intervention alone really wasn't enough to decrease antibiotic prescribing to what would be appropriate for this indication. Looking at our prescribing rates, we did feel that at baseline they were similar to other studies published both in the U.S. and internationally for overprescribing. So we know that overprescribing of antibiotics for this indication is not a unique problem to our health system. We did include large numbers of patients compared to other intervention studies in this area. Like I mentioned, we had over 170,000 patient encounters included. And we did find certain factors that were independently associated with less frequent antibiotic prescribing. These included things like normal body weight, being seen in a clinic compared to urgent care, treatment by a non-physician prescriber, and Hispanic ethnicity. We also found that patients over 65 years of age and patients who were smokers were more likely to receive antibiotics in both the pre- and post-intervention groups. And so what would you say are the key takeaways from this study for itchy readers? So some key takeaways from our study were that an electronic best practice advisory combined with prescriber education were associated with a statistically significant reduction in antibiotic prescribing for ambulatory adult patients with acute bronchitis. However, despite this promising reduction in antibiotic prescribing, our post-intervention prescribing rates still remained far above the expected appropriate rates for this indication. And so although our intervention only had a modest impact, it still would be easy to implement for others at other health systems. As Courtney spoke to, the data are, we feel should be reproducible by others, and 
A number of regulatory agencies are now um, requiring health systems to address outpatient antimicrobial stewardship, and we we feel strongly that the methodology incorporated in this paper and the way these data were extracted and, and shared could be used by other facilities to um, satisfy those outpatient stewardship regulatory requirements, say, for example, from the Joint Commission. And can you talk a little bit about the limitations of your study and any future research questions that it raised? Yes, so some limitations of our study are that it was a non-randomized and non-controlled design. And so we attempted to address the non-randomized study design by performing the multivariable regression to account for potential confounders. However, we found that many patient-level variables were lacking in these ambulatory patient encounters. Another limitation potentially is that since our intervention was tied to the ICD-10 diagnosis code, there was a potential concern for a shift in diagnostic coding um, to use diagnosis codes that were not included in our intervention. However, when we looked at the total number of patients over time with these diagnosis codes, we found they were similar throughout the study, indicating that there wasn't a large change from diagnostic codes included in the study. And then some plans for future research. We would like to further identify um, determinants of antibiotic prescribing variability, um, whether that may be patient or provider specific factors. And so based off the findings of this study, what are the next steps uh, specific to your healthcare system? One thing that's not apparent in, in the study as presented is the substantial variation in prescribing that exists among the clinics studied. There are clinics in the study that prescribed at rates of 10% or less, and there are clinics in the study that prescribed at upwards of 60-70%. So that prescribing variability, whether it's determined by patient-level factors, provider-level factors, or or location-level factors remains to be determined, and I think that's something that we would like to work with physician leaders in the ambulatory setting within our healthcare system to both identify and, and hopefully remedy. Yeah, I think, uh, Dr. Brummett, this, that's the real challenge is feeding this data back to clinicians. We had initially considered a physician score where each physician would see how often they prescribed for bronchitis. And that's a challenge in our system to provide that data. That's still a, a wonderful goal if you can achieve it. And I think uh, a more risk realistic goal for us is to provide clinics their data if there's adequate volume at a clinic and to pair clinics that are high performing, i.e. low prescribing clinics, with clinics that prescribe at clearly inappropriate rates and see if that culture over time can be uh, had a conversation and an educational process that gets clinics to have less variability in prescribing. So that's our next sort of institutional goal with this data, is to really motivate clinics to look at their prescribing patterns and improve. Yeah, I think one other thing internally as well is um, all of us worked on this project um, within the confines of Aurora Healthcare, but now we've become a larger health, health system under the name Advocate Aurora Healthcare, which spans across Wisconsin and the northern part of Illinois. So we're hoping to roll the, the best practice alert and, uh, and the associated data collection 
and feedback into the Illinois sites as well. So we, I think we've got a lot to tackle internally, and a lot of it does lend itself to future scholarship. Great. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us today to talk about your article on the Itchy podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Our last guest today is Stefan Kuster, one of the authors of the article, A Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program for the Reduction of Surgical Site Infections in Plastic Surgery and Hand Surgery. Dr. Kuster, welcome to the podcast. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, um, my name is Stefan Kuster. I'm um, a senior attending physician at the University Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, I'm an infectious disease and infection control specialist. Well, welcome and thanks for joining us today. To start, can you provide us with some of the background for your study? Yes, of course. Um, we were approached by the head of the Division of Plastic Surgery and Hand Surgery because he wanted to reduce his surgical site infection rate. We were um, a little bit surprised because that's normally not the uh, the discipline that you would expect to, um, to reduce its, its um, surgical site infection rates because they're usually low, um, as they were at our department. They were at about two or two and a half percent, which we already knew. But we, we thought that um, it would really be interesting to give it a, a try and to try to further reduce them. And um, he especially asked for not only a bundle of measures, but for a more comprehensive approach as he was already um, familiar with safety programs. So we tried to combine a bundle approach um, with evidence-based measures to reduce surgical site infection rates with a comprehensive unit-based safety program and um, develop the program and implement it in a before and after study. And so can you tell us a little bit more about what you did in this study and what you found? So we tried to implement and talk about safety first. Um, so we introduced or we, we talked about the safety culture at the clinic. We gathered all, mainly this staff physicians, um, but all the other disciplines as well who were involved in the whole process. So from the ward to the OR, anesthesiology, um, the surgeons, of course, and back to the ward. And um, so we talked about, about um, safety uh, and patient safety in general. And um, there were rounds, there were group gatherings um, and a lot of talking and a lot of uh, lectures about um, safety culture. Um, in, the, in, the, in the same time, we, we tried to find out about evidence-based measures for surgical site infection reduction in plastic and hand surgery. And we came up with what is already known for all surgical specialties mainly, um, put together a bundle, which we implemented in a checklist kind of that was added to the usual um, surgical checklist, surgical safety checklist. So we added normothermia, for example. We added um, correct surgical hand antisepsis. We added preoperative skin antisepsis and so on. And um, we taught all everybody 
to do it correct. And we implemented it over several weeks. And so what were your findings? So we found that it worked actually. Um, it was very interesting that we were able to further reduce our infection rates from the baseline of 2.2%, which is quite low already, to um, around 1.6% 1, 1 during that intervention period. And we then, we then want, wanted to find out what the reason was. And in the intervention group, we had a look um, whether the, the bundle measures were implemented better um, in those patients without infection as compared to those with an infection. And what we found was that there was no difference. So it was not the application of the evidence-based bundle measures alone. And we, we concluded that the whole surrounding safety program approach probably helped to reduce those infection rates. And what would you say are the key takeaways from this study for itchy readers? So what um, we thought before that study was that, that um, in infection control, single measures uh, alone are not very helpful. So usually bundle approaches are conducted. And what we think is that it's not the bundle approach itself uh, and alone, but the whole culture change, change that then plays a major role. So we think only together with the safety culture change, this was possible in that field with already very low um, baseline infection rates. So we would recommend to, to put more focus on this um, safety culture topic as a whole, rather than um, focusing only on individual measures that are evidence-based and have been shown to reduce infection rates. We think that, that the whole culture change made it possible to reduce our rates. And lastly, can you talk a little bit about the limitations of your study and any future research questions that this study raised? Well, it's mainly a before and after study with all its limitations. We don't know if there were other contributing factors that played um, an important role as well. It was conducted at only one hospital um, in one surgical um, specialty, so we don't know if it's generalizable to other hospitals, other areas, um, other parts of the world, and to other surgical disciplines as well. And this would be the, the, the fields of further study to try to implement this in um, other settings all around the world and see if it works. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Kuster, for joining us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you. This concludes episode 16 of the Itchy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and thanks for listening.